the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Colossians. I don't think that my tone is, you know, loud, but sometimes my wife does. Can any husband relate to that, right? And so sometimes she'll be like, why, why are you yelling at me? I'm, I'm, I'm not yelling. That, and then have you ever done this, guys? I'm not recommending it, but have you ever then offered the yelling voice? Because that's not yelling. So let me show you what yelling is. Just because I'm, I'm like going crazy. I, I don't think I'm yelling at all. But it's not what you say, it's how you say it. When you communicate to others, do you pay attention to the way you come across? In today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you the importance of self-awareness when it comes to communication. People will interpret what you mean by the tone of voice you carry with your dialogue, as well as your body language. Pastor Gary encourages you that it's not what you say, but how you say it. So try to make sure that what you say and the way that you say it are aligned for better communication to others. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Colossians chapter 3, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. God transcends the culture, and his advice and counsel for us is far better than what we think in regards to culture or life. You know, I, I had a, a medical doctor who once called me and, and uh, was trying to teach his teenage son about, he didn't go to our church, he was, he was actually our pediatrician when we took our kids to uh, a pediatrician when they were younger. And he wanted, he, said, he knew I was a pastor, so can you give me a scripture verse can you give me a scripture verse for, you know, I'm trying to teach my kids abstinence. Can you give me a scripture verse? And, you know, and, and, and he was a good Catholic, and I was just like, okay, let me, let me tell you what the Bible says. But, but one of the things I said, I said, doctor, you have 32 reasons you can give your teenage son why he shouldn't engage in, in premarital sex. They're, they're called sexually transmitted diseases. There are 32 sexually transmitted diseases. We only think of syphilis and gonorrhea, but there are 32 sexually transmitted diseases. I said, why don't you start there? Like, in other words, I, I know what the Bible says, it's good counsel. But the, the reason why God gives good counsel is because there are things that can harm us if we're not aware. And so when God says things, it's for our benefit. And so sexual sin is something we have to be mindful of. God created us as sexual beings. Uh, sex is a wonderful gift that he has given uh, to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. But outside of that, it grieves the heart of God, and it can actually do damage to us, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And so God says, I want my best for you. God's not a killjoy. You know, sometimes we, people think, well, God's just trying to take away my fun. No, he's actually trying to save your life. He's actually trying to help you. He's actually trying to spare you 
from heartache and from disease and, and from um, broken lives and, and destroyed marriages. And when, when we violate uh, God's gift of, of sex outside of that, that bond of marriage. So sexual immorality, for any other Greek word, he talks about impurity in the list. Um, that's just physical or moral impurity. Number three, it mentions their lust, evil desires which is a longing for what is forbidden. And then he mentions greed here, and he says, which is idolatry? That's an interesting connection, isn't it? How is greed idolatry? Well, greed, or King James talks about it as covetousness. When I covet what doesn't belong to me, when I want something that I don't have, and I just continue to dwell on it and obsess about it, then it becomes an idol in my life. Because when, I, when I'm craving or desiring or coveting something that doesn't belong to me, then it becomes an idol because I become obsessed and preoccupied with it. So he says, put to death these things. Put to death these things. The Greek word for putting to death is nekru. Nekrosate is the verb. We, we get English words like necromancy when people try to talk to the dead, which is just demonic stuff, or necrosis. Necrosis is when uh, cells die in tissue or organs. Uh, necrosis, it comes from that Greek word. In other words, Paul's saying there has to be a death to these things. You, you cannot negotiate with your flesh. You cannot negotiate with your flesh. You have to decide, I'm going to live my life in a way that pleases God. And when God says there are certain activities or behaviors that are sinful and displease him, then I'm going to put those things to death in my life. And I'm going to live for his glory instead. Number three, he adds there, rid yourself of such things. And then here's the list there in verse eight and nine. You must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And then in verse 9, he adds, do not lie to each other. Now, this section, whereas the previous section was mainly about sexual sin, this section here is primarily about verbal sin, is about things that we say, you know, and and usually anger presents itself in things we say, not always, but but often, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. Anger, you know, what's the difference between anger and rage? Anger is impulsive violence. Rage, King James says, wrath. It's anger advanced to a height. And the Greek word here, it's interesting, it's thumos. It literally means to breathe hard. You can tell when you're enraged because you're breathing, you're panting. And so he says, get rid of these things, get rid of anger. Again, we've talked about this before. Not all anger is sin, and we've distinguished between that. I'm not going to cover that again for tonight, but anger, rage, malice. Malice is anger with revenge. It's when you have intent to do harm to someone by revenge. Slander is speech that is injurious to another's good name. Filthy language, what more needs to be said about that? Disgraceful, shameful talk and lying, saying a false or deceptive statement. Something else he tells us here on the list about practical Christian living. Number four, to clothe yourself. Look at verse 12. He says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, we talked a little bit about this on Sunday when we were talking about the virtues mentioned in the book of Proverbs. And we talked about kindness as one of them, and humility was another of, of the ones that we highlighted on Sunday from the book of Proverbs. Uh, but this is, this is a good list for us to remember about the virtues that we need to clothe ourselves with. Practical Christian living is not just about what we should not do 
And he covers some of those things, sexual sin, verbal sin, but it's also things we should do. And some of the things we should be about, the things that should exemplify our lives are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, on this topic of humility, as I said on Sunday, humility is one of those virtues that we should all aspire to have, but never say that we do. Again, because the moment you do, you're not. Number five on the list, he mentions to us, bear with each other and forgive each other. There in verse 13, bear with each other. He calls us as Christians to be patient with one another, to be long-suffering, as King James' word here, to you know, not get frustrated easily, but to be, to be patient with each other, bear with each other. And then he mentions here also, and forgive each other. And I just, I didn't put it up on the screen, but I want you to notice that the rest of verse 13, he tells us, and how we should forgive each other. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you remember that conversation that Jesus' disciples had with Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. And Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? And then Peter throws out a number. Remember, he goes, how about seven times? Now, the reason why Peter threw out the number seven is because the ancient rabbis taught, forgive somebody three times when they wrong you. After that, you get to kick them in the teeth, basically. That's a paraphrase from the Message Bible. But anyway... But it was, it's like three times. That's all you need to forgive somebody. And then, and then that's it. So when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How about seven times? You need to understand that when Peter throws that number out there, his, his chest is puffed out because he's like, I mean, he's going LeBron James style right here. He's like, whoa, baby, I'm saying something good, aren't I? Because seven times, that's magnanimous of me to forgive somebody seven times. Right, Lord? Right? And you know what Jesus says in response. He goes, no, 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 not not seven times. Seventy times seven. Now, he's not saying, you know, do the math 490 times and then you get to kick him in the teeth. He's using an exaggerated number. What Jesus is saying is you need to forgive as many times as you need to. As many times as you get offended, that's how many times you need to forgive. And you need to constantly forgive over and over and over again. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is what some of you will think. Wait a minute. I don't, I don't want to be a doormat. Somebody's going to wrong me and then I have to forgive them and they wrong me again and forgive me again. Hey, hey, hey. Here's what, what, what it means when forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Have you ever sinned against God multiple times in the same way? Yeah, I have too. And so if Christ has forgiven us, for multiple offenses against God, even doing the same thing over and over again. And how many times have we done the same thing over and over again to God, and then we've even said, Lord, forgive me, I'll never do it again. And then we do it again. But he forgives us. And that's how we're supposed to forgive other people. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying as Christians, that's our responsibility, to forgive as many times as we've been wronged, over and over and over again. And let me just say on this topic, and I could make a whole Bible study or week-long series on, on this topic. Let me just say, if you also resign or resort to, to that saying, well, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget, you haven't really forgiven. When you add that, what you're really saying is, I'm going to give you lip service, but I'm not really going to work through forgiveness in my heart. 
And forgiveness is not something necessarily that happens quickly or overnight. Sometimes forgiveness is a long process, um, but it is a daily decision that I am not going to hold an offense against you because I'm going to forgive you in the same way that God has forgiven me multiple times for multiple things over multiple years of my life. So forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Bear with one another and forgive each other. Number six on the list is from verse 14. He says, uh, and over all these things, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So love is the supreme virtue that summarizes the ultimate way we're supposed to treat one another in all relationships. We are to be loving. And, and then uh, number seven on the list, number seven, he says in this passage here, he says, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And so part of living out your, your life in practical ways is to pray for the peace of Christ and, and to live your life with the peace of Christ. It should rule your hearts. Now, it's an interesting Greek word there, to rule. It means to arbitrate, to judge, to govern. Uh, even when you, when you look in Vine's dictionary, it even uses more of a modern word like an umpire, how an umpire calls, you know, balls and strikes and, and fair and foul balls. And, you know, you're, an umpire is, uh, is one who is making constant evaluation and um, making those judgment calls. Uh, and, and that's the kind of thing that peace does in our hearts. It, it bears witness, and it is one of the necessary characteristics, a standard for discerning God's will. Because when we have his peace, um, it is usually an indication that we are in his will. When we don't have his peace, uh, it's usually an indication that we're not. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Number eight, be thankful. That's an important thing. How many of us can, can be ungrateful uh, people just by nature. So it's a reminder, God's people should be thankful people. And then he adds also in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So it's a statement about the priority of the Bible, that God's word should be in our lives, that we should be reading it regularly. We should, it should be in our hearts. It should be dwelling in us, not just a, a passing contact, but that God's word should be living in us, taking root in us. We should be people of the word of God who are reading it, studying it, getting into our hearts. Not just, listen, it's not just about church when you're, when you're reading the Bible. It's about your own quiet time, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Number 10 in our list in this passage, he talks about how we should teach and admonish one another uh, with all wisdom. And, and if the word of God dwells in you richly, then you'll be able to do this, to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Number 11, we should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. There's this obvious emphasis here on worshiping the Lord. Uh, you read most Bible commentaries, and, and nobody seems to know the difference between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's an unknown difference here, but it basically speaks of a variety of worship styles and genres. So some people love 
and this is kind of a more modern application than, than first century AD, but you know, Amazing Grace wasn't around in the days of Paul. Uh, but for those of you who kind of, I just prefer the hymns, okay, that's perfectly fine. Or I prefer just kind of the worship choruses, that's fine. I prefer a blend, that's fine. You know, and God is worshiped in a variety of styles and genres of music and worship. As long as the lyrics are pure and true to doctrine, uh, God can be worshiped in a variety of songs. And then he summarizes it here, number 12, do everything in the name of the Lord. There in verse 17, he says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Glance down real quickly to verse 23, because he, he says it again in a kind of a different way. In verse 23, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And I, I just point this out because I think verse 17 and verse 23 go together. It should be a, a disposition of Christians in your workplace. Look, I know you, you might have an earthly boss, somebody that you're accountable to, you report to, some manager, um, but you're ultimately working for the Lord. And if you are the boss and you are running your own company, you, you are working ultimately for the Lord. And so in, in the way you conduct yourself and your work ethic and, and the way you handle yourself on the job, remember that you, you might be working for people, but ultimately we're all working for the Lord. So we should have the highest work standard in that regard. And, and then the last section here of chapter two, which we'll close out tonight, has to do with family responsibilities. So if you look here at verse 18, I'll read down to the end of the chapter. Verse 18, wives... Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter. Uh, King James says, provoke your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord And again, then, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. So just to conclude our study with this section here, somewhat of a hot topic, because this, again, to some seems archaic, the idea that there are actually responsibilities and roles uh, outlined here in the home and that God actually talks about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives. Look, don't get hung up on the word submission. It's a Greek word, hupotasso. It's actually a military term and it means to arrange in an orderly manner. All that God is saying here is that in, for the benefit of the proper function of a family, God has arranged things in an orderly manner and that he has entrusted the spiritual responsibility of loving leadership to a husband only because there has to be some Someone who kind of cast that tie-breaking vote in making a decision. Because two people, while they are both equally regarded in God's eyes, male and female, there's no difference, no distinction. All are equal in God's eyes for the purpose of structure, for the purpose of organization, for the purpose of order. God has arranged things in an orderly manner in a home, in a church, in government, in employment. There are orderly structures. That doesn't ever mean that somebody who serves in leadership is better than someone else who doesn't. This is all about God seeing everybody equally, but for the purpose of function, order, and for there to be some kind of cohesion, God has entrusted to husbands, that kind of loving spiritual leadership. 
and husbands are to love their wives. And it is the Greek word agapeo. It means the highest form, the supreme kind of love that is in Christ. Husbands are to love their wives in that way and to not be harsh with them. And there's this ongoing joke in my home because I don't think that my tone is, you know, loud, but sometimes my wife does. Can any husband relate to that, right? And so sometimes she'll be like, why, why are you yelling at me? I'm, I'm, I'm not yelling. That, and then have you ever done this, guys? I'm not recommending it, but have you ever then offered the yelling voice? Because that's not yelling. So let me show you what yelling is. Just because I'm, I'm like going crazy. I, I don't think I'm yelling at all. But it's not what you say. It's how you say it. Yeah, all the ladies chimed in right there on that one. <laughs> and so, guys, we have to, you know, watch the tone, watch the tone. So, so the ongoing joke in my house is when I'm not even aware that my voice is... And it, you know what's the worst for me is after Sunday and after Wednesday. Because I'm used to projecting when I'm teaching. And so in the home, I'm still projecting. But this is what Terry does. She'll just do this with her hand to her ear. That's the clue. I need to just drop it down. When I see the hand to the ear, that's the clue. Just drop it down. Now you ladies can try that. He'll get it. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Enough said, right? That's, that's just pretty self-explanatory. And don't be afraid to say, because I said so. I know some, that's a cop-out. No, it's not. It's in the Bible. <laughs> but, but fathers do not embitter. Don't provoke your children. You know, dads need to be careful. And again, you know, it's not to say that moms get to embitter. Uh, you know, there's not a verse there. Hey, ladies, you get to embitter. You, no, but it's just saying again, hey, the main responsibility falls on dads. And so you, you better be extra careful not to provoke your kids, not to embitter them. To, you know, be gentle. Maybe there are times you got to say the direct thing and be firm, but don't do anything that would provoke them or embitter them or they'll become discouraged. Now, look, this last section here about slaves, this is sometimes a criticism of the Bible. Why doesn't the Bible speak out against slavery? This is, this is obviously a, a terrible thing. Don't think that because instructions are given here to slaves or the literal word in the Greek is servants, that somehow the Bible or God condones slavery. Uh, he doesn't. He condemns it. In fact, he even mentioned, we just read it a moment ago, in, in the same chapter, verse 11, here there is, in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, but barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So he says the, the playing field is level, that God doesn't discriminate against race, gender, nationality, ethnicity. All Paul is saying here, so don't, don't misread and don't think that it, it somehow means God condones slavery. All Paul is saying it, this is first century Rome. There are millions of slaves in the first century Rome, and many of them came to faith in Christ. All Paul is saying here is, if that's your condition, let me tell you how you need to exemplify Christ in your condition. It's just like in the same way, there are times where, you know, Paul speaks about who he is as a prisoner when he's actually a prisoner in, in Rome because of his faith. And he talks about his life in Christ as a prisoner. He's not condoning the fact that he's been imprisoned. He's just simply saying, here's who I'm going to be in this circumstance that I find myself in. God condemns slavery. Uh, but as he writes it here through the pen of Paul, all he's simply saying is, if this happens to be your situation, first century Rome, and you're a believer in Christ, 
here's some advice to you to make the best of your situation. Why don't you just listen? Listen and do what you're told to do. And don't do it just when they're looking, you know, to gain their favor. Do it when they're not looking because, again, you're ultimately serving the Lord. And so be mindful of that, that everything we do is unto the Lord. And in this way, chapter 3, here's how we can live out our lives for Christ in practical Christian ways. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here at Cornerstone Connection, we are committed to providing teaching that helps you become rooted and built up in Christ. Pastor Gary Hamrick is working through Colossians, and it is full of wisdom that will establish your heart in the faith. If you want to take this one step further, we have companion resources available for you. These digital study guides are for those who want to learn more about today's message. You can find these resources and so much more on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast or download our mobile app. Hours of great teaching from God's Word in the palm of your hand. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, check out our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, to find our location and service time. If you have specific prayer requests, you can send them to us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. And remember that we are always giving thanks for you when we pray for you. We can't wait to connect with you again next time at Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.